Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast. My name is Sean Mader, and today I'm really excited to have a friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Pearson, with us today. And just a little background on Michael. He's the James F. Stoner Endowment Chair in Global Sustainability at Fordham University. And he's a full professor with a focus on global sustainability and social entrepreneurship. Not only that, he's a research associate at Harvard University's Human Flourishing Program. He co-founded the Humanistic Management Network and is founder and president of the International Humanistic Management Association. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Humanistic Management Journal. So that's a, a whole big mouthful, Michael. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I, I think the, uh, the, your, the theme of your passion comes through pretty uh, clearly in all of those uh, qualifications and accolades. So I think the first piece, so we know humanistic management, humanistic leadership is obviously the area that you're very passionate about. Uh, first, how did that come about? I know you've been at this for about 20 years now, correct? Yeah, and depending on how you qualify, it's longer. <laughs> but the search, the ultimate search, how did it come about? Is like, we can do better. Uh, and, and the quest is how? And what's missing right now in, in a world where we have a holy crisis of multiple really big challenges for our species. Um, and we have come to the very basic insight that it depends on how we manage ourselves and others and the planet that we inhabit. And uh, that the current way that we do so is informed by a lot of science. Mm. It may be poorly understood or misunderstood or has served a time, but is not fit for purpose now. So then the quest was really like, what do we know that we can do to actually advance our species in how we organize to a degree where we, this is our tagline, protect the dignity of everyone involved and promote flourishing on a, um, within the planetary boundaries. So humanistic management, the way that we have developed it is simply the protection of dignity and the promotion of flourishing within the planetary boundaries. And from there, you can come into various different conversations, research-based, practice-based, policy-based, and it turns out they are much more productive and can lead to solutions and innovations that you're referring to that serve the common good, that create and serve to create a world that works for everyone. Mm. That may sound very idealistic, but that's the ambition I think many of us have and share. And so we're looking at this through the angle of this terminology of humanistic management. You can label it all kinds of ways and people do. Uh, and I do think there's an underlying shared ambition that we, first of all, want to survive and then we want to thrive. I find that that's one of the biggest challenges. Uh, I talk to a lot of workers, managers, of course, a lot of other practitioners. And there seems to be this uh, 
kind of inherent conflict between what leadership in a, an organization is willing to take on versus what is really wanted. But it comes down to, okay, you have a CEO who's under pressure to hit X numbers, or it could be their job if it's a publicly traded company, or even the same kind of situation in a, in a private company. How do you make that case to the leader to be open to taking on some of these practices when, you know, dignity for everybody, the future of humankind might fall outside of their thoughts on where their job limitations are? Right. And, and honestly, I'm not sure that this particular person that has such limited focus is the right kind of person to speak to. At the mm. same time, the job of a leader and of a CEO is to have a bit of a broader perspective and understand that there are pressures and constraints for sure that are short-term. We all have them. We all experience them. And much like we all have to eat every day, most of us, the companies produce profit. The question is, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. And it starts with a mindset shift, of course. And leaders typically are not stupid, right? So they typically get what we're talking about because most of the time what they're doing or what the mainstream is doing is not working or is not working very well. Mm -hmm. You have all kinds of crises uh, and CEOs have, have seen this. They have even felt compelled to issue a statement. I think it was in 2019 to say that all of a sudden now shareholder value maximization is not their purpose anymore. They are coming together and, and probably because they were scared of Bernie Sanders appealing to the youth. And this is not new phenomenon. This has happened in prior iterations where the social legitimacy of business is questioned mm. and not only of business. So they understand there is something bigger at stake. And uh, you see the financial industry is really keen in seeing that there is clear financial benefit to running an organization with a social purpose and uh, an organization that builds trust with its quote unquote stakeholders with people. And how do you do that? If you, if you use people as instruments and tools that are dispensable, you typically don't build trust. You typically yeah. don't build a goodwill that's critical for innovation. That's critical to move a company and organization forward to solve the issues that we're all facing. And then say, here is a solution that we can provide that will help us to survive and thrive on this planet. Much of the innovation that's happening right now is very short-term focused. It's focused on gimmicks, on how you can maximize and squeeze something uh, out of something existing. It's really not uh, very radical and it doesn't serve the bigger picture purpose. And then you have companies like Tesla that actually have created a product that many other companies could. Well, and now they are. Now that and somebody's now, shown proof of concept. Sudden, yeah, all of a sudden they are. But it's still like, okay, well, there is a big opportunity for us to create products yeah. and services that allow us to stay on this planet uh, in perpetuity. And we just need to sort of figure out a way how to get ourselves and the resources going. And it's not impossible. Yet the current mindset and most of the CEOs uh, our experience themselves is very limiting. So we work with a number of CEOs that, that get that. These, uh, they at least get it on paper. 
but many there's an openness and willingness to want to go down that road. Yeah, because it's almost like a, there's no other alternative, right? Right now, it's become so bad that that leaders are trying to, or CEOs are getting together and writing these letters because they feel like, yeah, they, they have no other option, right? They, oh, they claim that they are now doing something for the common good. They, they, they talk all these Sunday-type uh, speeches, um, but oftentimes the cynicism is only growing when people that work with them or are customers of them don't experience these companies as authentic. So that's where they're trapped, right? They know that they need to appeal to a social legitimacy that they don't have. They need to build trust. They need to innovate. And at the same time, they're not really skilled and trained to do so with authenticity. Well, that, that might be a perfect segue to talk about some of the particular work around Humanistic Leadership Academy. Uh, this is how I was first introduced to you. And, you know, since we're talking about trust and, and authenticity, uh, the fact that we're collaborating on some of this as well, that one of the topics that I don't think people often think about is that our current corporate landscape is a very new phenomenon in human history. And it was almost the building upon the proof of concept from our successes in World War II from the military and its command and control structure. And that is kind of what gave birth to what we now know as our current corporate structure. So when we talk about the paradigm in which corporate leaders have been trained and developed, the kinds of education they got in their schools, graduate school, we're kind of at this now friction point between there's something new that's really needed and called for, but the people in charge are actually not trained in those skill sets. So with that, I thought I'd love to hear you uh, describe a little more about what you're doing with the Humanistic Leadership Academy. Well, thank you for that opportunity. So in as you described, we have inherited patterns uh, of how we organize effectively, and much of it comes from really effective organizing around the military, even the churches, you could say, um, you can see this applied and it's not like this isn't working. It is working for a certain set of problems. We can solve them that way through command and control and through, uh, maybe administration You can say that. And at the same time, there are very many problems that we're currently not set up to solve that effectively. And those are the issues around our survival in terms of the planet but also the kind of social issues that we're experiencing, the social unrest. And people are saying, you know, we, there's barely been a time in history where we had had more wealth. Right. And still we have all of these social upheaval and unrest uh, happening where you would think that if we are so wealthy, we should be peaceful, happy uh, ever after. And that's not the case. There's something foundational that's off. And I call it the blueprint that we label economistic. It's built on the, on the scarcity uh, that was experienced in the 16th, 17th, like up to the Industrial Revolution. And for sure, life got better when we got more stuff, especially if we didn't have enough stuff. And we can say that very clearly. Our life expectancy improved. Our health improved. Our well-being improved. Uh, and so many of those things are real. At the same time, there seems to be a sufficiency level 
And we have reached that. And there is such a thing as too much and more is not better always. And still we're sort of caught in this notion that more is always better. And so we're producing, 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 taking, making, wasting a lot of things that now come back to haunt us. All the plastic in the oceans, uh, all the overall uh, pollution that is happening across the planet is just not helping us to really live well. Uh, or you have to be extremely wealthy to buy yourself an island where the pollution is not yet really visible <laughs> or buy yourself a rocket to escape it, right? But that's really not a solution that works. Um, and so we, we can really clearly say this economistic blueprint of how we used to organize doesn't work now. That doesn't mean we have to throw it out. And there is something that is more fit for purpose. We call that the humanistic blueprint. Okay. And in that sense, we say, all right, you got to understand what people's basic needs are and what makes life dignified or human. And that's basic things like food, shelter. And that has also been quality relationships, trusting relationships and purpose. And those are not nice to have. And those terms are getting bandied around and people are talking a lot about purpose and about uh, trust and all those things. Yes, yes, yes. Those are all important. Why are we talking about those things? Because we don't experience them. Why do we not experience them? Because our mindset was actually built on, we don't need it because more is our purpose. And if we have more, we have a better life. And we all now experience that that is not working out. Uh, and so the humanistic approach is actually an approach to uh, balance, not to maximize. And so that's right. I actually uh, re recently ran into Douglas Rushkoff at, a, at a, an event. He's the, the author of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And um, I think his current book out right now is a reflection on his talks with billionaires who, when they had a chance to talk to a futurist like him, were more concerned about how they could keep their private armies from turning on them when everything goes down. And uh, But one of the points he made was, you know, Look at who we celebrate in our economy to the people who have managed to amass the most. Now, nowhere else in human history before this kind of economy would we ever, you know, there was never a Native American chief who was valued because he could, you know, his TP could have, you know, that much stuff. Acquiring, you know, wealth beyond a certain point was actually never a value of character, but it is now. And he says, you know, imagine a company like Facebook, what if they actually existed to connect people? And they were a healthy $100 million company that was sustainable and be able to continue doing that in perpetuity. Maybe you wouldn't have to give away 90% of your gains to try to go repair the democracy and educations as well, all these uh, fallouts from these uh, from these exploits they've done because of the excesses and the needs to pr uh, produce quarter over quarter profits. So it seems so obvious when we talk about that, but we're also kind of up, up against the structural design of an economy. And I, it sounds to me like what you're doing now is what's implicit in what you say is we now are at a point of development where we should be able to actually design a future and God forbid 
markets serve humans versus humans serving markets. Absolutely. I mean, wonderfully said. And in, in many ways, we're not giving ourselves permission to do so, right? In my right. conversations with uh, students that are coming into leadership positions, et cetera, it's remarkable how little imaginative power uh, same with many of the leaders that we experience, right? We celebrated Elon Musk because we really don't have much better, right? But yeah, that's sort of the kind of innovation that we can get. And I'm sure we can get more because that's how we have survived as a species always. There's a reason we've been here for such a long time. And the things that we are experiencing now are not any, they're not big issues overall. They can all be solved. The solutions are already out there everywhere. That just not at scale uh, provided uh, in a way that it would actually make a difference at this point. And right. there's nothing that says that we can't do that, right? Except for the permission that we give ourselves. So this limitation in our head, in our brain, is really a critical piece to unleash the power and the human potential or the human creativity. And, and that's what we're working towards, right? Is like, okay, there are a couple of other blueprints. We don't need to be in this cage, in this prison, uh, uh, in this mindset that really just doesn't serve us. Because everybody bitches about it. Right. Yeah. Bitching is a, is a uh, scientific term, as you may know. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. But it's like, oh, oh okay. my God, we can't do much, but I wish, I wish I could do something, right? Or like even the billionaires that are saying, you know what, I want to need, I, I need to get my bunker. It's like, it's not like these guys are living a good life. And right. Nobody's actually inspiring. happy with it. Yeah. No, it does. It sucks. It sucks in, uh, in different shades of gray. Right. But it's still not something that actually works. And we all know it. And we don't yet admit it fully. Like we're well, you know, ourselves. the um, even before COVID the employee engagement numbers or the uh, amount of time that a millennial might, would stay in a job before seeking a new job was already kind of an abysmal epidemic of cynicism and resignation. And then we've had, of course, COVID, which may have focused our attention and exhausted us, but was really under the context of an emergency. So we're now that all those numbers are even worse. So the it sounds like we've generally learned how just to manage cynicism and resignation and all of this missed opportunity while at the same time, everybody's saying, we know it has to be better. We, we can't keep going this way where it, just to keep the lights on, we're going to burn down the house, you know, in the process. Mm -hmm. And yet I think from everybody I talk to, they feel powerless to do anything about that. Everybody knows it now, how, just like anything big, we got to break it down into smaller steps. Like how do you kind of get the ball rolling? So when you talk to leaders about this, how do you start to warm up that conversation, start to see them that there is actually something they could do, even though they don't have a magic wand? Yeah, I think that's where it starts. It's like you, you acknowledge that this is a big issue and nobody can solve it by themselves, which if you get that also means you can do a part. And we need to find new ways of collaboration. It's like, there is not going to be a magic wand or a superhuman person going to clean up, right? We may wish for superheroes and that's still like 
somehow a very appealing story according to cinema revenues. But it's not a reality that people experience, right? But they want to escape into the superhuman, superman, whatever uh, superhero personality. At the same time, I think it's removing that kind of pressure for people to say, you know mm. what, you need to solve it all versus you can do a part and this is what it is. And it's actually not that hard. It will improve your quality of life and it will allow you to engage in much more meaningful work. So it, the beauty of all of this is, is like we're seeing that this one pattern paradigm is crumbling and there's always something else that's emerging. We see clearly, we call it a humanistic paradigm. There is so much possibility, right? There is so much possibility of creating things newly in a way that serve us. At the same time, enjoy it. It's not like you have to suffer. But that's where people lapse into. It's like, oh my God, I'm suffering. I prefer this way of suffering over the unknown way of suffering. When it's like, hey, maybe that assumption needs to be tested. You can actually create a better life for yourself, even though it will not be paradise. And it will not make you, uh, uh, what is it, superhero. Right. Yeah, it's not an all or nothing. People have, like, if we're going to do something, we have to be on the other end of the spectrum. But you it know, has the Earth Act and it has right. this and that, and therefore I'm not doing anything. So many of us, including myself, I remember growing up, was like falling into that trap. It's like, if I can't do it perfect, I, I can't do nothing. Right. right. And then removing that pressure. I think is a really big first step. And so when you talk with CEOs or anybody, they typically get it. They have that pragmatic mindset, right? But what they don't have in many ways is like this imaginative courage. They are lacking. They are lacking in that, that it could be different. And it's on them to actually also invite other people to support. Oftentimes they have the feeling that because they're CEO, they need to know everything. Yeah. And therefore, they are in a position. And so if they admit that they don't know or they invite other people, that oftentimes requires a different type of personality or a certain level of maturity that may exist or that maybe people can tap into, definitely can be developed. But it's not something that's really just out there. In most cases, CEOs currently still in public corporations are selected for a certain profile. Yep. And that profile does not mean that they're typically collaborative leaders, that they have great imagination around these issues, that they have sensitivity to that. Uh, and yet that's shifting because it needs to. At the same time, if you're talking about talking to them, that's the kind of possibility that they can co-create for them and with others. Well, and we've trained, we've trained our entire culture around that kind of model. So, uh, there's there's a documentary that I love. It's it's very dark if anybody wants to watch. It's called Hypernormalization. Uh, it's Adam Curtis, who's a BBC filmmaker. Um, but hypernormalization was a term coined by a Russian philosopher to articulate the very strange condition Russia was in after the fall of communism. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase this, but basically you had an entire population that knew the system was now broken and didn't work, but for lack of imagination, continued to perpetuate it and do the same things over and over. And Adam, the filmmaker, Adam Curtis sets up this idea that our pol political class, our leadership class has failed to provide a vision for people to live into. Hence why we tend to keep rehashing and doing the same things over and over. 
And it sounds like that's that ephemeral piece that you're getting to, which is until we can confront that we're looking at our world with blinders on, and we've almost been so conditioned to uh, like our imagination muscle is so atrophied that imagining how it could be, I think sounds very uh, Pollyanna and kind of like, you know, kumbaya for people who are stuck in that paradigm, but that is still the first step you have to engage with and kind of confront the limitation before the limitation loosens. Absolutely. And this is our power. This is our quote unquote survival. Uh, this is the, I, I, we used to call it killer app, right? I want to reframe the killer app to actually, this is our survival app. This is why we have, yeah. been here. this is why we are here is because we can imagine, right? And it's very simple and very basic things about, okay, if I use this twig, can I imagine using that twig somewhere else? Can I create tools? I can create advanced tools. Right. We all come from the same kind of imagination and question. And we do it day by day on very, very trivial things, right? We do Sudokus, we do uh, all kinds of, riddles, trivia, quizzes, and things like that, that give us some of that uh, endorphin that, that we, we need because otherwise we just go bonkers. It's important to understand that this is what we want to feed and this is the perfect opportunity to get, get both meaning and trusting relationships back because who would not trust the person that actually wants to improve the condition of the world, including themselves? Uh, rather than the person that says, yeah, I'm going to maximize my own profit, which you typically should be aware. I'm going to be opportunistic and I'm going to cheat you. And I'm going to tell you that I'm a really good guy uh, so that you, that you buy my stuff still, right? So this well, is, it just doesn't work. It's just much harder to do this old model. Uh, and I, I think, and you know, and I think everybody knows and feels that, yes, it's, it's enlivening when you create solutions that are meaningful. That's the big opportunity. Any CEO, any leader, any person can tap into that. Yeah, you know, you, you pointed to this, this piece, uh, you know, that I'm personally working on optimal trust, which is how to measure trust in organizations, how to teach people uh, trust. And, and through that, you're developing empathy, self-awareness, situational awareness. But the question I get most often is, well, how do you make uh, people who are, you know, uh, po being political, backstabbing, you know, competitive and underhanded, how do you make that environment more trusting? And, you know, I, I always feel bad because they want a very simple solution to that. But invariably, you realize that's the culture that that company built for maximum competition. <laughs> that's the incentive structure. That's... Uh, it, in, in none of these situations do I see the customer is never put first. The well-being of the employees is never put first. If you actually talk to the people, they don't like the work they're doing and they've resigned themselves to the best I can get is being cutthroat. And if you witness how they interact together, nobody's telling the truth about anything because God forbid somebody say what's actually happening, it wouldn't be heard or they would actually ostracize themselves so this kind of condition now, uh, this is where I love the work you're doing because you're recognizing that it's an upstream solution. You have to actually have the leaders be the space for the kinds of conditions and cultures they're creating. 
Yes and no. Because if we okay. are waiting for the leaders to lead, we are dead. Because those people that we have currently in official uh, leadership positions aren't trained to do any of what we're talking about, right? Right. Oftentimes selected for exactly what you're talking about, reproducing a culture of whatever type. It could be administrative culture. It could be a cutthroat market-oriented culture. It could be something else, right? But in many ways, what we need is novelty in a sense. If this is something that doesn't work, we want to engage in a way that we can see that can work differently. Maybe not always better, but testing and experimenting with that. And you call it evolution of innovation. Yes, yes, it's an evolutionary principle. You test, you readjust, and you're being flexible about these things. The good news is that everybody can do that. It's not something that the leader only can do. And in fact, the leaders can't do as we established, right? So anywhere you are in any part of an organization or in life, you can adopt this innovative mindset. You can test, you can create newly, you can see and identify possibility and train yourself in that perspective and, and break it down to small things that are small and quick wins and then build up from there. And you can do this in any kind of organization in the group and the sphere of influence that you have. Now, of course, as you say, it does matter what other contexts right. you have, right? And there is this mutual, which is important to understand that most people think instead of a top-down thing, only, no, no, you can have a lot of influence up, upstream, you can have a lot of uh, influence sideways, and you can connect and collaborate in different ways. And uh, oftentimes the change that's happening is not changing from the top, if it is sustainable, right? It is coming from all kinds of sides. The top allows for it. Right. And, 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 and could limit it. But, you know, that, you know, th thanks for pointing that out, because one of the I find this point to be a difficult uh, point to articulate. But when you deal with frontline workers who are really cynical and resigned and have no you try to talk to them and they see no opportunity in going above and beyond for anything. In a more humanistic environment, what I start to find is those workers see their work as an expression of their life. Because you are co-creative, when you are collaborative, when you are connected to the person you're interacting with, your customer, and you start to take joy in that, there seems to be like a new field of experience that arises where, you know, but how do you get people to connect that the quality to which you apply to your work is actually the quality that you create in your life. And I find that that paradigm shift is so powerful for people, but most often killed off by managers and, and kind of those frontline leaders uh, that have so much power that they may not even recognize that that's right there for the taking. Yeah, you, you're probably right. I think people are pretty oblivious in terms of their power and their influence, right? And they can use it both ways. They right. can use it to kill it off. And just a simple sentence like you are naive, you're stupid or something like that can kill off a full whatever possibility it could be created by, by others, right? And so that kind of language is very critical and the awareness and the possibility or the ability and capacity to listen to other people newly in a way of like, what, what may be possible here? Let's say I hate my yeah. job. Okay, but which are the pieces that I don't hate? What are the things that I actually like? Can I do more of that? Can I do more of the engagement with customers? Can I give them space? And maybe even just like a portion of their dignity. 
Can I recognize them as people? Can I recognize myself as a person? Do I, do I honor my own dignity? I think many people that are resigning have also resigned part of their dignity, have, have yeah. accepted. And, and, and this is the terminology that I heard a lot growing up also. It's like, this, you're, you're too naive. You're, like, if you want that. It's too idealistic. It's, it's too idealistic. Oh, it's, it's like, you're, you're, you're an idiot. It's like, no, it's actually the opposite. It's like, if you don't think that way, <laughs> you're pretty dumb. And, and you're resigning yourself to being much less than you could be. Right. Right. And, and those people that are in the cynicism, they have resigned to a degree that they, how can you enjoy life? Right. How can you enjoy life? Everything has to be interpreted through the cynical lens. Um, and you will transfer that and it will pollute your personal relationships, your marriage, your relationship with kids and other people all throughout, because that's just how you have become. And you know that, well, it's like, we can, we can declare ourselves to be different. Not, well, like, you know, I think some of this, some of this got highlighted during COVID and I don't know if it ever got fully articulated, but. You know, we have our economy is built on the messaging that what will make you happy is out there. Yeah. The new thing the new, and or more money. More. So I, I think in that sense, people really have resigned to that. It's not over here with me. It's out there when it comes to almost everything. And then COVID, I think, started to challenge people's notions about what they were willing to do for that. Now, I think. What I find the most challenging is how do you actually get people to discover that for themselves at the source of that? There's a phenomenon to that is over there with them. And I wonder what are some of the examples you've seen out there of people getting it right, where they're activating that intrinsic sense in people or where people are actually creating those kinds of cultures? So one thing that I can I can share that in, in this journey that I've been on with exactly those kind of questions and, and, and experience or challenges for myself uh, at the same time is that there are a lot more people out there than we think. We're not, so we're not unique in this at all. This is a right. common shared human experience, right? So, which is amazing because then it's not like you're the idiot, you're the outsider, you're like marginal. No, no, no. The fundamental human experience is that we are at this point, <laughs> not really taking on our power our possibility to create ourselves in the way that we want to. But we deeply yearn. We yearn for that. And there are people out there more so than we would believe. But the stories are not very well known. Because the story that sells is still the story of business sucks. The world sucks. Uh, and, and in some way, that's understandable too. Because yes, people from an evolutionary perspective react more to the dangers. So we want to hear about the dangers for sure. And at the same time, we want to calibrate that with some of the good stories. So sometimes we get fed the good stories. Uh, at this point, unfortunately, not enough of the stories are actually out there of people that are really making positive contributions and have always done so. Our species would not have survived if we were egotistic, opportunistic, asocial psychopaths. We would not. We are fundamentally social. We care. Uh, and, and that's why we're in such a misery because we don't get to express that. Right. 
And yeah, so in that I, sense, it's just highlighting those stories of people that are doing that. And you're one, you're on that journey. Other people are on that journey. And the more you're on that journey, you see fellow travelers almost everywhere. We exactly. Well, and I think a lot of it speaks to, there's a handful of people who are being loud about it. And the second you talk to people, it doesn't seem to take much for people to recognize, oh God, no, that actually is what I want. I've just have been cynical. I accepted that that's not possible. Wait, you're talking about that? I want some of that. And um, I think I told you uh, there was a Harvard Business Review article on the neuroscience of trust, mm -hmm. and which is really fascinating and yet maybe uh, really obvious that the neuroscience, high trust environments, people have higher levels of oxytocin. The chemicals that are a byproducts of connection, love, affinity, and those companies have lower turnover. They have higher productivity. They have less burnout. They have less sick days. I mean, just go all the way down the list. And that sounds obvious and yet uh, not as common out there. But one of the companies that got highlighted in there was Barry Waymiller, who is mm -hmm. also part of of the Humanistic Leadership Academy. So I wonder, you know, what are the things that you see that are happening at Barry Waymiller, a company that is, might not be known to anybody, mm -hmm. uh, and how they actually start to fulfill on some of these humanistic principles? Well, I mean, the fascinating thing is only, I mean, I heard about them before, but uh, the CEO contacted us rather recently, maybe three years ago or something, because of the work on dignity. They did not call it dignity. They call it just everybody matters. Right. Mm. But the way that he arrives at that conclusion was after a business school training and being in the CEO circles, uh, he, he says he just basically knew how to manage people and use them for his own purpose. And that wasn't satisfied. Right. That was mm. deep down, not who he was. And yet he got the message that that is what's good. And at some point he was seeing that that's not so good <laughs> or that better is possible. Right. Um, and, uh, so the, what they're experiencing, I think is in much part of a reflection of this particular leaders, Bob Chapman's own personal journey. Mm. And he's sort of scaling that out and, and the current principles that they're using are listening, like at the, as that core skill listening, right. And, and also then building trust intentionally. Yeah. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, you have to have business skills. You can't just be out there to sort of say, all right, I'm right. going to see the world and, and all of those things. So yes, you have to have clarity on what is it you're providing, being able to provide with quality and, and, and engage with customers and, and, and build that trust in that kind of context and maintain it. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what those principles are. It's not rocket science at all. It's just right. And it doesn't bypass the actual, uh, need for technical aptitude, doing what's needed. Like it's a very, yeah. they have a very sophisticated international operation yeah. and everybody is obviously working, but you know, the one example that I recall from that article was they take on a very deliberate practice of acknowledging their people mm -hmm. and they're, they even, um, somebody on the factory floor who was getting an award for their contribution, not only it wasn't just, Hey, thanks. Everybody claps. They flew their family in, mm. they had their coworkers, they had their managers around. There's an actual acknowledgement of contribution that not only celebrated that one person, but it sends a message to the whole group of people that we see you and we acknowledge you. And hey, 
you might not be the one getting the award today, but you are all a part of this. And for that person who got that to go home and be known by, you know, in this case, his wife and children and to be seen. I mean, that is a when we talk about dignity, that is a, a an expression of honoring somebody's dignity in a way that makes complete business sense in how that impacts the entire tenor of the work floor and the and the group dynamics the next day when everybody goes back to their job so simple and yet it it's kind of like don't get out there as often yes and, and indeed it's so simple and it's fundamentally human right we call it dignity um and it, you can call it acknowledgement it's like you honor somebody, you see somebody, you listen to somebody, right? It doesn't mean that you do exactly what they say, but that you are actually there with them, relating from human to human, not from frontline worker to back office worker or right. CEO to uh, uh, machinist or whatever it may be, the categories that we put ourselves in. Right? We, we still have those categories, and yet there is something that connects us all. If we tap into that fundamental humanity that we all share, acknowledge that, yes, who wouldn't want to do anything there? Who wouldn't want that? Even in their families. We know that most of the relationships that are breaking down are because of a lack of appreciation and acknowledgement and voiced acknowledgement. It's not like, yeah, of course I like you. Of course I appreciate that. Or yes, I'm going to get you a ring or something like that. It's like, hey, I see you. I hear you. And uh, I want to acknowledge that. And those basic principles for humanity will not shift. They're there. You can tap into any of those principles in a way that makes sense in a business context. Well, look, I, I think that's a great note to go out on because I think a lot of people think that it's got to be something far more complicated. And if you just start there, uh, I think both you and I have the experience, like the answers for all the other things start to reveal themselves when you start allowing for that condition. So, so Michael, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here. I'm looking forward to the rest of the work that you're doing. And um, if somebody wants to reach out to you, where can they reach you? They can reach me uh, via the email. Uh, that I have at Fordham University. It's my last name, Pearson, P-I-R-S-O-N, at fordham.edu. Um, yeah, that's probably And if they want to check out uh, Humanistic Leadership Academy? Yes, the humanisticleadershipacademy.com, I think that's what it is, and then the International Humanistic Management Association.org. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, again, thanks for being on today, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thank you, thanks. Sean. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today on the Evolution of Innovation podcast. If you'd like to hear more, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and also on SeanMaderStudio.com. And if you're interested in any of our transformation services for learning, training, and development, you can also find out information there. It's S-H-A-U-N-M-A-D-E-R Studio.com. Thanks and have a great day.